and standing here while we um, read the scripture for this morning, or at least the scripture I'm going to use as a stepping stone into what I'd like to speak on. If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, Hebrews 12, 1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. You may be seated. When the writer of Hebrews speaks of this great cloud of witnesses, he's talking about the preceding chapter, actually, those that have witnessed to us of what it means to walk by faith in God. And he gives a, a number of examples here in chapter 11. In fact, if you go through the chapter, you see over and over again, by faith, by faith, by faith Ab- uh, Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, uh, by faith Moses, uh, just on and on like that in that chapter. Well, what I'd like to do this morning is talk to you about a man that by faith uh, did a number of things, and uh, this is actually from church history. I thought I might just ask you to make a guess at who I might be speaking of, someone from church history. Uh, there, there it was. Whoever said Martin Luther. Exactly. This uh, coming Tuesday marks the 500th anniversary of an event that is often considered the beginning of the Reformation. Now, there was reformers before Luther. But uh, what he did on uh, October 31st, 1517, was he went up to the church door at the castle church there in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed or posted these 95 theses on the door. That was kind of the bulletin board of the day. Now, Luther was a Roman Catholic priest and theology professor at that time in Wittenberg, and he was not intending to break with the church at Rome. He merely wanted to take a stand against the sale of indulgences. In fact, the actual title of what he posted that day was a was a disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences. So he was dealing with specifically with his subject of indulgences. And actually, at this point in his life, he was not even saying that the idea of indulgences was necessarily wrong, only that the way they were being sold and abused was wrong. And what happened that day, people kind of look back at that as kind of the spark of the Reformation. Luther had no idea of what was going to happen uh, by posting these 95 theses on that church door. Uh, Later on in life, he he said, uh, God led me on. He said, "I, I, I had no idea what was going on, but God led me on. And you can see that as you study his life, step by step, God was taking him 
uh, more into the Word and more away from the Roman Catholic Church. So we just want to examine this life as an example of by faith because that was one of the central teachings of the Reformation, justification by faith, by faith alone. Um, First of all, let me just say what an indulgent was because that was kind of the thing that sparked uh, this uh, situation. Uh, An indulgence is kind of a uh, strange thing in the sense that uh, it's a little bit strange for us as Protestants to even think of such a thing as an indulgence. But what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching was that there was both eternal and temporal consequences to sin. The person that was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church had their eternal consequences of sin removed, but there were still temporal consequences, uh, both in this life and in a place called purgatory. That's another Roman Catholic doctrine. Purgatory was a place where you go after death to have your sins purged away uh, before you could go on to heaven. So the temporal consequences had to be purged or burned away through punishment or penance or some type of payment. If you purchased a letter of indulgence, it was kind of like a pardon. You got this actual sheet of paper that said you were given a certain amount of indulgence. Uh, it was like a pardon from the church. You could receive even uh, either a partial or sometimes a complete remission of the temporal punishments for sin, for your sins. You could also purchase these indulgences for dead relatives so they would not have to spend so long in purgatory. So uh, you, you have a kind of feel for what this thing of indulgences was. Uh, now, Luther saw the sale of indulgences as contrary to the scriptures. He had, by this time, he had gotten hold of the basic truth of the Reformation was justification by faith. So he saw that this, this thing of the sale of indulgences did not fit that at all, uh, especially the way it was being practiced in Germany by a monk named Johann Tetzel. Now, I just want to give you an example of the type of thing that Tetzel would, would go around Germany uh, saying, preaching, presenting to the people. He would say, listen now, God and St. Peter call you. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, Pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us with a pittance. Just pay a little money and get us out of this place called purgatory. You are so cruel and hard that, that now you are not willing to for so little set us free. Will, will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? So this is really tugging at the heart strings here, you know. Why won't you do this for us? Just a little money and we can get out of purgatory. And the, the Tetzel would say, Remember that you are able to release them for as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So just put a little money in the in the box here, and out goes your relative out of purgatory into heaven. So 
Although Luther was not at all ready to break with Rome, he did know that this teaching was contrary to the gospel, where righteousness comes by faith in Christ Jesus. Um, so I thought I'd just read you a few of these 95 theses. Now, these, these are propositions that he wanted to debate with other theologians, other Roman Catholic theologians. Just let's talk this over because this doesn't seem right, basically, is what he's saying. Here's some of what were written in those 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So this isn't a matter of putting a little money in a box, a little pittance in a box. This is a matter of a life of repentance. He said, Those who assert that a soul straightway flies out of purgatory as a coin tingles in the collection box, are preaching an invention of man. He was hitting right on, the, right on that thing that Tetzel was saying. It's an invention of man. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned along with their teachers. I always didn't miss any words there. Uh, any truly repentant Christian has a right of full remission of sins, penalty, and guilt, even without indulgence letters. And then he says, the true church, no, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Those are just a few examples. Now, the pope at this time was a man named Leo X, and what actually was going on, he needed money because he, was going to, he wanted to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral, St. Peter's Basilica. As you see, if you see pictures of Rome today, one of the things you'll see is this massive St. Peter's. Well, the, the Pope at that time was in the process of, re, of building that, and he needed money. So these guys like Tetzel were going around raising money for the church, for the Roman Catholic Church to build that, that building. Now, Luther had visited Rome about 10 years earlier in 1510, and he was very discouraged by the extravagance, the corruption, and the sin that he saw there in the center of, of Catholicism. So when Luther posted these 95 theses, he was hoping for a debate with some of the academics of the surrounding area. And this, just to show you what a spark this was, nobody showed up. Nobody, nobody debated Nobody wanted to debate with him. They, he posted it and nothing happened. Except that some of his theology students, he was teaching theology there at Wittenberg at the time, translated them from the Latin. Those 95 theses were written in Latin. They translated them into German and took them to a printer and they started to be circulated. That's what sparked things. Within... 14 days, the 95 Theses were all over Germany. People were reading these things and wondering, what, who is this Dr. Martin Luther that's saying that all this stuff we're hearing is wrong about indulgences? So, uh, in one way you can say that the Reformation was partly due to the fact that just a few years earlier, the printing press had been invented. Uh, there, there had been people like Whitcliffe and Huss 
who had said very similar things to what Luther was saying, but it never got spread around very much because it was a hundred years before, like when Huss was saying these things, and uh, the printing press wasn't uh, available then. There was no mass distribution of this information, these truths. Well, like I said, within 14 days, it was all over Germany. Within six weeks, the Pope in Rome was informed about what was happening in Germany. At first, he dismissed Luther as of little importance, but as dissension grew there in Germany, he summoned Luther to Rome in 1518. Uh, Luther didn't go. So the Pope sent representatives to challenge him and to turn him away from his errors. He was brought before several councils, but the more he was attacked, the more he was driven to the Bible, and the clearer he began to see how wrong what the Pope was saying and what the Church had been saying for years, the Roman Catholic Church had been saying, the whole Roman Catholic system. In other words, just like he said, God led me on a step at a time. He didn't see a lot of this stuff to begin with, but the more he was challenged, the more it forced him into the Bible, the more he saw, wait a minute, this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit, this is wrong. Uh, so, uh, in October of 1520, he received what was called a papal bull. That does not mean that the Pope sent an animal <laughs> up to him. A papal bull was an official document from the Pope. Well, this papal bull gave him 60 days to recant or be excommunicated from the church. Now, the Roman Catholic authorities had already been burning Luther's works and books and pamphlets because they considered him to be a heretic. So when these 60 day when this 60 day period was up this time that he had in order to recant instead of recanting Luther took that papal bull and burned it in the streets there in Wittenberg as he threw the papers into the fire he said this concerning the pope as thou that is the pope has confounded the truth of god so may he that is god this day consume thee in the fire so things are getting heated up. <laughs> uh, he's now, now this, you know, when he took that papal bull and burned it, that was much more dramatic step than uh, pounding the, uh, posting the 95 theses there on the church door. Uh, obviously, uh, things were not going to go well f for Luther as far as the Catholic Church was concerned at this point. The, if it wasn't for the fact that he had some powerful political friends like the Elector of Saxony, a guy named Frederick III, or sometimes he's called Frederick the Wise, to protect him, Luther probably would have been arrested and killed. Uh, but he had some friends that were in positions of power, especially this Frederick. Uh, one thing that stands out as you read about Luther is his boldness. When Luther was convinced from the word of God that he was doing the right thing, he would not back down. 
At one point he made this statement, Do not think that the gospel can be advanced without tumult, trouble, and uproar. The word of God is a sword. It is war. So that was, I mean, he was, he knew he was taking a stand against a very powerful enemy. But I will say this, sometimes our strengths can be our weaknesses. As we shall see a little bit later, his firm resolve sometimes made him hard-headed. Being stout-hearted should not make us stiff-necked and not make us people who are not open to correction. Well, by 1520, Luther had pretty much become a folk hero in Germany. Posters, and they, of course they didn't have photos back then, these were woodcuts uh, of him, were sold out as soon as they were put on sale. They were on display in homes and in many public places. So the Pope, of course, realized he had a big problem. Uh, So he knew he had to call in the power of the state in order to stop Luther. He'd already excommunicated him. But now he says, I want the power of the government to come against him now. Uh, There is no separation of church and state back then. And uh, so this was no small thing for the Pope to call on the emperor to deal with, with Luther. Luther's dealings with the Roman Catholic Church really came to a head in 1521 when Pope Leo looked to the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, to deal with Luther. Charles, of course, was a Roman Catholic, and he was emperor of Austria, Spain, the Netherlands, Germany, and portions of the New World, uh, which had just recently been discovered by Columbus. So the emperor convened what was called the Diet of Worms, W-O-R-M-S. We would say worms, the Diet of Worms is actually pronounced Berms. And when you read that, it doesn't sound too appetizing, does it? Diet of Worms. Uh, well, Worms was a, or Worms was a city in Germany, and a diet was another name for a council. So Charles issued uh, Luther a safe conduct, which means he he wouldn't arrest him if he came to this council, this diet. But many people told Luther not to go because of what had happened to John Huss a hundred years before. Huss had been uh, issued a safe conduct to appear before a very similar council, but that safe, once he got there, that was not honored, and he was arrested and burned at the stake for his opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. So people are saying, do not go, Luther. That safe conduct doesn't mean anything. Well, Luther believed that God wanted him to go, so on April 2nd he started for Worms, uh, believing that he may, may well be going to his death. He said to his fellow reformer and friend, Melanchthon, My dear brother, if I do not come back, if my enemies put me to death, you will go on teaching and standing fast in the truth. If you live, my death will matter little. 
So he, he was contemplating the fact that he might not return from this event. Uh, the words of the hymn that he wrote later were surely a reality to him at this time. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. So he knew if someone was still there to carry on, present the truth, his, God's kingdom is forever. You know, they may kill me, but God's truth will go on. So what I'd like to do here is give you kind of a synopsis of of what happened there at the Diet of Worms. Um, this is kind of from a number of history books, uh, just kind of putting things together. But uh, I think, to me, this is really the high point of Luther's life in, in terms of his stand and what he was doing there to really change the course of history. As I said, many people told Luther not to go to Worms, and uh, Luther said, if there are as many devils in Worms as tiles on the rooftop, I will still go there. Now, you gotta, if you've been to Germany or seen pictures, the old homes and buildings all had these tile rooftops. It's like our shingles. Uh, basically, we'd say if there are as many devils in Worms as there are shingles on roofs, I'd still go. Well, when he got there, uh, when he arrived in Worms in April 16, 1521, it wasn't so much the tiles on the rooftop, there were people on the rooftop because thousands of people had come knowing about this uh, event. Uh, uh, people were lining the streets and on the rooftops to, because they wanted to see this man who had defied the Pope and was now to appear before the most powerful ruler in the world. Who was this man? They wanted to see, wanted to get a sense of uh, who this man was. So dense were the crowds that on April 17th it was extremely difficult for Luther and his supporters to reach the conference hall. God gave him a word of encouragement from an old knight who was standing there at the entrance of the hall as he was about to enter in. This is what this old knight said. My poor monk, my poor monk, you are on your way to make such a stand as I and my, many, and my knights have never done in, the, in our toughest battles. If you are sure of the justice of your cause, then go forward in the name of God and be of good courage. God will not forsake you. So that was a good word that God had for him just as he's entering, entering into this place. When Luther entered the assembly, he was somewhat overwhelmed by the power and pomp of the situation. The emperor, of course, occupied the main seat, but his brother, the Archduke Ferdinand, um, was near him. Beside that, there were six electors of the empire, 24 dukes, and many princes, counts, and barons, rep representing the worldly powers of the Holy Roman Empire. Then there were also the Roman Catholic representatives, 30 archbishops, bishops, and abbots, and seven papal ambassadors. Altogether, there were 206 people of prominence, with the presiding officer being a man named John Eck. 
one of the foremost, foremost theologians of the Roman Catholic Church. So he goes into this huge hall, and here are hundreds of very prominent, I mean the leader of the Holy Roman Empire and all these leaders of the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, and he, there he is standing before them. Eck opens the proceedings by asking Luther whether he is the author of the books and writings displayed on the table before him. They had a big table there, and they had all of Luther's writings. Are these your books? Yes. And then the second question, he asked Luther, was he willing to recant the doctrines contained in, in the books? Now, Luther wanted to debate and talk to him and present what was in these books and, and say, this is why I believe this. Here's what the scriptures say. They, wouldn't, they didn't let him do that. Luther said, well, how can I recant? There's, there's Bible verses in there. I'm not going to recant Bible verses. And he said, some of these uh, doctrines are accepted doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. You want to recant these? He, he said, what he was trying to do is get a uh, opportunity to present truth there in that si situation. But the Pope had instructed his representatives not to allow him to do that. Don't let him talk to you about the scriptures, basically. <laughs> is what, don't get into his discussion. So Eck kept coming back to these two questions. Are these your books? Will you recant? So in reply, Luther acknowledged that these were indeed his books. As for the second question, he asked in a soft voice if he could have some time of reflection. Let me think about it as far as this area of recanting. The emperor granted him one day, and he turned to one of the people beside him and said, certainly this man will not make me a heretic. In other words, he wasn't too impressed with Luther. Uh, so Luther went back to where he was lodging, and he was troubled, partly because he just realized he was going against so many whom it seemed that God had invested with authority. Here you have, here you have all these people from the Roman Catholic Church, plus all the secular rulers, who really there wasn't you know, a big divide between the two, but... You know, he was very, very aware that God put people in a positions of authority, and, and now here I am standing against all these people. He spent the night in prayer. One of his friends tells something of what was prayed that night, and this is just, a, again, this is just a shortened form uh, of some of what's recorded as far as what Luther prayed. O almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world, how weak is the flesh, and how powerful Satan. O God, do help me against all the wisdom of this world. This is not my work, but thine. I have nothing to do here, nothing to contend for with these great ones of the world. I should desire to see my days flow on peaceful and happy, but the cause is thine. That's, I think, a key. The cause is thine. I'm not here representing myself. I'm here representing you. Mm -hmm. The cause is thine. 
Oh Lord, help me. In no man do I place my trust. Act then, O God. Stand at my side. For the sake of thy well-beloved Jesus Christ, who is my defense, my shield, and my strong tower. Well, the next day then, April 18th, the streets were again lined with people, spectators, and the assembly hall was again filled with dignitaries. Luther was brought before the emperor, and again, Dr. Eck, this Roman Catholic theologian, put the question to him as to whether he would recant what he had written. Luther made his reply first in Latin and then in German, and as one historian said of this, this what he said, he said, this is the speech that shook the world. And it ended with these famous words. Unless I am convinced by, testimony of the, by the testimony of scriptures or by clear arguments that I am in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves, I cannot withdraw. For I am subject to the scriptures. I am subject to the scriptures I have quoted. And here's the famous line. My conscience is captive to the word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Mm -hmm. So help me God. Mm -hmm. That little phrase, here I stand, there's a whole book about Luther, and that's the title of the book, Here I Stand. Standing on the word of God. Mm -hmm. The truth of God. One account says this. The assembly was thunderstruck. Many of the princes found it difficult to conceal their admiration, even though they were Roman Catholic. They couldn't help but admire this guy that stood before him and said the things that he did. The emperor, recovering from his first impression, exclaimed, This monk speaks with an intrepid heart and unshakable courage. But he soon arose from his seat and informed those about him that he had had enough of such talk and left the room. So uh, Charles V left the room. And uh, the following day, as the emperor had reflected on what had taken place, he told his courtiers that, quote, he could not see how a single monk could be right and the testimony of a thousand years of Christendom be wrong. See what he's saying? He's saying, you know, all these hundreds of years, this is what the church had been teaching. How could this guy be right? So he ruled against Luther. He did honor the safe conduct, though, but Luther was now to be viewed as a heretic, He was already excommunicated, and now he was condemned by both church and state, which meant that he could be captured and killed on sight. So even though the emperor honored his safe conduct out of Worms, it was not a good situation for Luther. As he was being escorted out of Worms, a band of hooded men grabbed him and threw him in the back of a wagon. 
this looked like the end for, for Luther. But what was really happening was that his friend, Duke Frederick, had arranged for him to be kidnapped. <laughs> he wanted him kidnapped, and then they, these people that grabbed him took him to Warburg Castle and hid him there in order to keep him safe. I mean, this sounds like a movie, doesn't it? <laughs> For almost a year, Luther was living there in disguise, dressed as a knight and addressed as Squire George. <laughs> grew a beard, grew his hair out, and would go around the community. Nobody knew who he was, that this was actually Martin Luther. He spent his time studying the scriptures, reading, and mainly translating the Bible into German so that the people could have God's word in their own language. He was taking Erasmus's New Testament and, and translating it into German. He translated at an amazing rate, producing the first draft of the whole New Testament from the Greek in 11 weeks. His friend Melanchthon helped him through a revision, and by 1522, the New Testament was selling quickly throughout all the stores and shops there in Germany. Later, the, New Testament, the Old Testament was completed by a committee working under Luther's supervision. supervision. And some historians really think that his translating work was actually Luther's most significant achievement because now the German people had the Bible in their own life. They could, they could read for themselves yeah. what the Bible said. Right. You didn't have to listen to what some priest or, or even Luther, you could read it yourself. What does the Bible say? And they could see clearly that it was different than what uh, they'd been hearing from the Roman Catholic Church. It also, the fact that Luther translated the, the uh, Bible also standardized the German language into the form it is today. Uh, his translation is still very popular in Germany, something like the King James Version here for, for English-speaking people. Well, after almost a year in, at the Wartburg, this castle where he was hidden, he heard of problems back in Wittenberg. Some people were wanting to take the Reformation much further than Luther did. Some of the peasant class, misunderstanding Luther's stand against both church and state, rose up in revolt against the German nobility, nobility the nobles and the princes. Uh, you know, the idea was, well, Luther has challenged the authority of the church and state, so we can do that too, and we don't like the system we're under, so we'll just rebel. Uh, Luther tried to mediate, and there were some valid reasons for their uh, revolt, I mean, mistreatment and things of the peasants. Luther tried to mediate between the two groups, but ended up siding with the nobles, and the peasants' revolt was put down with much bloodshed. Uh, some estimates think that there are around 100,000 people killed in this peasants' revolt. And, of course, he lost some some popular support amongst the people because of siding with the nobles on this. Um, well, there's so many things we could talk about here, but I, I did want to present a few things related to his marriage. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, aspect of Luther's life. 
He married a former nun, Catherine von Bora, in 1525. Uh, even, that, even how that came about is, is interesting. I'll just tell you real briefly. Uh, she was, uh, like I said, a former nun. Um, her and eight other nuns uh, ran away from a nunnery because they had gotten a hold of some of Luther's writings and saw that the situation they were in was not really according to Scripture. So when they ran away, they went to Wittenberg. And uh, Luther felt some responsibility for them since they had, you know, responded to his teaching and, and uh, left this uh, position of being nuns. So he tried to find husbands for them. He was very uh, keen on the idea that, uh, you know, this whole idea of uh, not being married was somehow super spiritual. He said, no, that's not true. The, the uh, position that God has for most of his people is marriage. So he tried to arrange uh, he tried to arrange some marriages for these nuns. Well, he got all of them married off but two. And then finally the, uh, the, the, the one was married to the mayor of Wittenberg. So there was just this Catherine von Bora left. And he thought he had something arranged for her, but it fell through. And uh, Luther said, well, he's talking to her. He said, well, something to this effect anyway. Um, well, don't you think he should be married? Is there anybody you're interested in? She's, she said, yeah, <laughs> you. <laughs> so, so they were married. She, she was 26 and he was 41. But surprisingly, I guess you would say, because this was not any big romance, as you can tell, they actually had a very good marriage. His home and family life gave him much joy and elevated the biblical view of marriage, which had been distorted throughout much of the Middle Ages. People had totally wrong views of marriage because it was not a, a spiritual, not looked upon as spiritual. The spiritual people didn't marry. Luther said that he was against that view. And he actually had a very uh, good relationship with his wife. Here's some of the names. He had some nicknames for her. Uh, he called her Dear Rib. Had to think a little bit about this. My Dear Rib. My sweetheart, Kate, or sometimes my lord, Katie. <laughs> she was fairly strong-willed. If you read an account of her life, she was quite a lady. Uh, so sometimes he called her my lord, Katie. Together they had six children and raised four orphans. And he said he believed that marriage is a far better school for character than any monastery. Let me give you two other quotes related to this aspect of Luther's life. Uh, Luther had a sense of humor, uh, and you see it in this first quote. At the birth of his first child, Hans, Luther wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which was still the custom of the time. It keeps him from squirming around. You know, you wrap, wrap these claws around him, around the baby. 
Uh, he wrapped him in swaddling clothes, saying, Kick, little fellow. That is what the Pope did to me, but I got loose. <laughs> Later, after more children were born, he said, When the neighbors laughed to see the master of the house hanging out diapers, the angels in heaven are smiling. I like that one, you know. Uh, just that God's pleased with just, just the very basic things of, of uh, life if we do it under the Lord. Well, I need to start trying to bring this to a close. But I do not want to gloss over some of the less desirable aspects of Luther's life. For one thing, he wrote some very anti-Semitic material later on in life. He said such derogatory and mean-spirited things against the Jews that later, many centuries later, Adolf Hitler actually quoted from Luther to justify some of what the Nazis were doing to to the Jews. The terrible things, he said, burn their synagogues, take, them, take away their houses, get them out of the land. Just, just not uh, right at all what he was saying. Uh, some people think it's because, he, because initially uh, there were, earlier on in his life, he made some commendable statements according to, uh, in accordance to the Jewish people, but some people think that they, since they did not receive the gospel, that Luther just kind of became embittered and said these very bad things. Uh, also, as I said earlier, sometimes our strengths can be our weaknesses. Luther's unbending, unbending desire to do what he felt was right from Scripture sometimes made him very inflexible and irreconcilable, even with fellow believers. Like I said, uh, you know, he was bold, but, you know, if you go too far sometimes and don't have the Spirit of God, that boldness, you become kind of bullheaded, and it's not a commendable attribute anymore. Uh, One example of this took place in Marburg, Germany in 1529, when the leaders of the Reformation in southern Germany and Switzerland, under a man named Ulrich Swingley, tried to be reconciled with the leaders of the Reformation led by Luther. There was kind of a a Reformation in northern Germany under Luther, which later became Lutheranism, and the southern Germany and Switzerland uh, under Swingley and later under Calvin. Well, these these leaders tried to come together. Swingley and Luther and a bunch of their representatives met at this place called Marburg, Germany in 1529. Swingley had actually come to an understanding of many of the Reformation teachings independently of Luther. And in some ways, he was more radical than Luther. For instance, he wanted to get rid of all the images and pictures in the church buildings, and he also wanted to get rid of the pipe organs. (laughs) Luther liked music, and I'm thankful that he did. Uh, He was actually a a good musician, and he wrote a number of songs. But uh, anyway, the point is, is that uh, although uh, they disagreed on some of those minor things, uh, on the ma- many major things, they had things 
in agreement and were in common with one another. Both had come out of the Roman Catholic Church, talking about Swingley and Luther here, rejecting the authority of the Pope. They had both held to the authority of scriptures alone and both agreed that the principle of justification by faith alone was the scriptural position. In fact, the leaders of these two reformed movements talked through the doctrinal issues there at Marburg Castle, and they agreed on 14 of 15 points. Many of the basic things, sola scriptura, uh, by faith alone, uh, um, in Christ alone, uh, just very basic things they all they agreed on. Ironically, the sticking point was an area that was supposed to be supposed to demonstrate the unity of Christians, that is, the Lord's Supper, or what we sometimes call communion. They couldn't get together on that. And he, I want to just explain this to you. The main dispute had to do with Jesus' statement, this is my body. Luther insisted upon the real bodily presence of Christ in what they called the Eucharist. Uh, um, Christ's body is act not just spiritually in the time of uh, communion or the Lord's Supper, but he insisted on the real bodily presence of Christ uh, in the understanding of the uh, Lord's Supper. He did not believe in the Roman Catholic position which held that the bread and wine are changed into the very blood and body of Christ by the priest. He didn't believe that the priest could say those words and make it into the body and blood of Christ. Nevertheless, he still believed that, it, that Christ was bodily present in, in the, uh, the bread and the wine. Uh, he said that uh, Christ's body and blood were present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Swingley, on the other hand, saw the Lord's Supper as a memorial done in remembrance of the Lord's death. He viewed the words, this is my body, as symbolic or as a metaphor. Uh, he emphasized the verse, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh profits nothing. A number of times in these days that they were together, uh, the arguments got very heated and harsh. At one point, Luther took a piece of chalk and drew a circle on the table. And in the circle, he wrote the, the Latin words, hoc est corpus meum, which is, this is my body. At least that's the way I would say it. I'm not sure that uh, that's quite the pronunciation of the Latin, but hoc est corpus meum. Well, over and over during this discussion, he would simply point to the surface, the circle and say, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, this is my body. He just kept saying it over and over. Jesus said, this is my body. Uh, well, after days of debating various aspects of this issue, Luther said that the only way there could be unity was if Swingley would accept Luther's position. He said, there's not going to be any unity unless you go along with me in this. I'm, I'm taking my stand. I mean, here's a, here's a here I stand that wasn't such a good here I stand. 
because basically he's saying that you're going to have to believe what I say on this and go along with me or there can be no unity. Zwingli would not do this so that he, uh, so he knew there was no use of going on. They'd already dealt with this for days. Later, with tears in his eyes, Zwingli offered to shake Luther's hand and remain brothers despite their differences. He said, Let us confess our union in all things on which we agree, and as for the rest, let us remember that we are brethren. There will never be peace in the churches if we cannot bear differences on secondary points. Luther declined to shake his hand, saying, Yours is a different spirit than ours. So the hope of unity, the hope of a united front against Roman Catholicism was dashed, and the two reformers departed never to meet again on earth. <clears throat> Luther, for his part, as the years went on, became even more entrenched in his view that Christ must be bodily present in the Lord's Supper. Years later, he made this extreme statement. I can't hardly believe, you won't believe it when I read this. He said, I would rather drink blood alone with the Papists than have wine alone with the Swinglians. Incredible. Many of the more extreme statements of Luther uh, and I would say re regrettable statements of Luther came later on in his life. This stuff about the Jewish people and this, these strong statements about the bodily presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. These were later on in his life, and some people try to excuse this because of his age and sickness. For instance, he had repeated bouts of kidney stones and hemorrhoids and gout and dizziness. I mean, he was a sick man towards the end. Age and sickness may have had some bearing on what he was saying. They may have been a factor, but there's no excuse for bitterness and being mean-spirited. There's no excuse for unwholesome words in the Christian life. So I'm just saying you can't just let him off the hook because of his age and his sickness. Perhaps the best attitude towards Luther is what Calvin put forth. He was well aware of what he called, quote, the vehemence of Luther's natural temperament. He said, I, I know about how volatile he can be sometimes. The vehemence of Luther's natural temperament, which was so apt to boil over in every direction and to flash his lightning sometimes also upon the servants of the Lord. He said, I know he'll speak out in ways that he shouldn't, sometimes even against other Christians. Nevertheless, Calvin viewed Luther as, quote, a most distinguished servant of Christ, to whom we are all, all of us largely indebted. Calvin said, Often I have been wont to declare that even though he were to call me a devil, I should still not the least esteem and acknowledge him as an illustrious servant of God. So that's a pretty generous attitude there from, Hel uh, from Calvin. He knew that God had used him for some tremendous things. 
And I think that's the way we need to view it too, uh, view him also. Actually, even as you go through the, you know, we started out here in, in Hebrews chapter 12, and you go back through uh, these people by faith Abraham and by faith Noah and by faith all these people that are mentioned. If you read the accounts of their lives, you find out they had some pretty significant flaws. But God still used them. And by faith, they did some incredible things and advanced the cause of, of God. And I think that's how we should view Luther also. Uh, to me, one of the scriptures that fit him well, well is Proverbs 14.10. Let's look that up. Proverbs Fourteen and four. I'm sorry, I don't know if I gave you the right reference. Fourteen four. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of the ox. I kind of view Luther like an ox. And uh, the manger, sad to say, got pretty dirty at some point in Luther's life. But there was also much advance of the gospel because of this strong ox of a man. So uh, I think that verse can be applied to Luther's life. I would also say this, that we've just looked at a few snapshots of Luther's life. We don't have the the overall picture. even as you study through history, you know, you're just seeing bits and pieces here. And I've just, you know, I've just given you a very brief summary. Uh, if you started reading right now and read, started reading all the books on Luther, you wouldn't get it done because there's been so many books written about him. In fact, he wrote so much himself that it hasn't even all been translated into English. A few years ago, 20, 30 years ago, up in the library, Truman uh, they had Luther's works, and the books were about that thick, and there's 55 of them. And that's not even all of what he wrote. They say that eventually there should be like 100 volumes of books that thick. So you had, uh, I mean, there's so much material and so much that he said, uh, and we're just looking at a snapshot here. The point I want to make from that is just that ultimately only God knows the man. Only God knows us well enough to pass final judgment upon us. And that's the way it is with everybody. Final judgment of our lives belongs to God. So one last verse. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 4 and verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motive of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Um, We don't have to defend those things that were wrong. 
Um, we don't have to say that uh, here is a impeccable hero of the faith. We just have to say, God knows. We can look at the accounts and try to glean what we can, but only God knows the motives, only God knows the heart, only God knows the whole picture. Uh, I like this little phrase. It's back in chapter 3, verse uh, 13. The day shall declare it. I think of that often in relationship to my own life and uh, just in so many situations. The day shall declare it. That day when we stand before God, then the books will be opened. 